Hello and welcome back from the weekend to the Upper Bowl GM podcast. As always, it is your host, Nick Zararis, and there is a whole bunch of sports stuff to unpack from the weekend, the MLB trade deadline, Formula One's last race before summer vacation, some NHL news that broke over the weekend, some NFL news. There's a whole lot of stuff to go over to try and give you a snapshot of the last three days. But before I get to today's episode, I do have to remind everyone to help support the show, whether that's on social media, giving it a signal boost, if it's on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, throw it a signal boost, help other people find it. If you are listening to this show, you have already found it on one of the podcasting platforms it's available on. It's on all of the major ones, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. If it is not on a podcasting platform you use, please let me know. I can upload the RSS feed. It takes about five minutes. It is very easy to do. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, you do have an added responsibility please, please, please go to the show's homepage, scroll down to the bottom, there are five clear purple stars, hit the one furthest to the right, that's leaving a five-star review, beneath that is a button with purple letters that says write a review, if you have a minute, really would appreciate it, help support your content creators, folks, we are out here busting our asses, trying to help make you a little bit smarter, entertain you a little bit, and, you know, it, it is fun for me. I'm not just doing this for professional reasons. I do have to get these ideas out of my head or I'm going to stare at the wall all night. So, not guest today. Guests later in the week. Got a couple lined up for this week. A couple lined up for next week. Got really good stuff in store to help us get through the dry spell of the sports calendar, which is coming up where it's only going to be baseball and the two major racing series. And then we'll have the NBA offseason, which is kind of still developing. We're starting to see the beginning of that. The NBA draft was on Thursday night. There was some action there. MLB, we're getting into the stretch run here. The NHL, most of the fury is over, but there are a few things to talk about over the weekend from that. And the NFL is on the horizon. College football is on the horizon. There's plenty to be excited about. We're only three and a half weeks out from week zero of the college football season. Hopefully game day will be at Disney World again, and we'll get back to some semblance of a normal college football season. And we all, we all can go about our degenerate business going to try and start putting together a comprehensive college football preview episode for down the road but for today's show unpacking the weekend no introduction today i'll see you guys in one second breaking news here on cbs sports hq max scherzer headed to san diego psych he's headed to los angeles the reigning world series champions have now acquired max scherzer and trey turner from the nationals bottom Hammers it, center field, Brandon Nimmo back, seventh heaven! He was as important a player as any of them, beloved in Chicago, will never, ever have to buy a meal there. And now he drills one deep to right field. There it goes, see ya! His first Yankee home run, and it gives the Yankees a 1-0 lead. Esteban Ocon is going to be a Grand Prix winner in Formula 1. Ocon wins the Hungarian Grand Prix. Sebastian Vettel takes second for Aston Martin. Lewis Hamilton from 14th comes back to finish on the podiums. Jack Eichel is one of the premier players in this National Hockey League. 
An NHL player is denying accusations that he has gambled on his own games. The wife of San Jose Sharks, Evander Kane, made the accusations against him on Instagram yesterday. And with that, we will jump right on into it. The biggest thing over the last few days, in my opinion still, the Major League Baseball trade deadline, one of the more active trade deadlines of recent memory. I know when I was a kid, a few individual trades stand out. I still remember the Manny Ramirez to the Dodgers trade standing out in my mind, thinking, wow, the Dodgers just got a guy who's only a few years removed from being an MVP. There have been a few over the years, but this one... Major League Baseball's whole shtick about it being competitive must be working because teams who had no business buying made moves to add. A lot of teams were ready to raise the white flag on opening day this year, and those teams obliged the teams eager to unload prospects. The biggest move, of course, Trey Turner, Max Scherzer, going to the Los Angeles Dodgers for a package headlined by Kybert Ruiz and Josiah Gray. Now, last time I talked to you guys... We were under the assumption that Scherzer was going to the Padres when I was recording with Chris Schweitzer at about 4.30 on Thursday. Ken Rosenthal had reported Scherzer to the Padres was going to be, was close to happening. Rosenthal later retracted said report. Scherzer may or may not have vetoed the trade to San Diego. We still don't know exactly why Scherzer ended up in LA as opposed to San Diego, even though if Rosenthal's reporting something, it's usually pretty good. And if he's reporting something that close to the deadline, that means he had it on good authority. It was probably going to happen. So I, my working theory is that Scherzer did not want to go to San Diego for some reason. He gets to go to LA, the defending World Series champions, join a rotation with Clayton Kershaw, Julio Urias, Walker Buehler, and set up the best four-man rotation in baseball, arguably, unless Blake Snell wants to start pitching well again for the Padres. But the Dodgers haven't been otherworldly impressive this year as they've been in years past. I mean, they're still only in second place in their division. They're trailing the San Francisco Giants. Cody Bellinger is not having a great season. Mookie Betts' traditional stats, his batting averages on base aren't great, but he's still hanging around. His OPS isn't bad. He's got a kind of low batting average on balls in play, which tells you he's getting a little bit unlucky in terms of what's going on. Still an above-average outfielder, so I don't know if... I'm, I might have been overreacting a couple weeks ago when I said maybe the Red Sox won the Mookie Betts trade, but... The conventional stats aren't there. They've been getting buoyed this year by Chris Taylor in particular, who's been just outstanding for them, and Max Muncy, who's having a ter ter outright terrific season for them. So they get some reinforcements in Trey Turner. They activated Seager, their former all-star shortstop over the weekend as well. So they're going to have him. They're going to have Trey Turner, Chris Taylor, Justin Turner, Max Muncy, Cody Bellinger, Will Smith, Mookie Betts, and really quickly, you can see a team that's going to be a serious contender if they start hitting again. And even if they're hitting, never really comes around to what it's been in the past. You know, they still got that rotation. I mean, I'm pretty much, you know, every team in baseball, but four or five, Scherzer would be the undoubted best pitcher on the team. On the Dodgers, he's probably the second best behind Walker Buehler. But if he was on pretty much any other team, He's the unquestioned number one, and to have that kind of flexibility in a playoff series for the Dodgers, it's going to be very exciting to watch. They did have to give up pretty good prospects. I mean, 
I'm pretty in tune with baseball, but when it comes to prospects, I usually defer to some of my other friends and some of the experts I know. But I, I know who Kybert Ruiz and Josiah Gray are, so th that's how you know these guys are pretty highly touted from their amateur background. We'll see. I expect them to catch the Giants in the second half. I would be kind of surprised if the Giants played as well as they did in the first half down the stretch here. They are an older team. Eventually, I do expect the wear and tear to catch up to them. Now, some of the other moves at the deadline, the Mets, they went out and got Javi Baez. Exciting, terrific, woohoo. And part of that, they got Trevor Williams, which is contrary to the reporting we had heard earlier. We had heard that the Mets had interest in Zach Davies, who... The difference between Zach Davies and Trevor Williams is more or less negligible. They're both pretty mediocre number four or five starters, but the Mets opted for Trevor Williams because he had minor league options left, and they could send him up and down a couple of times before they would he would have to clear waivers or be DFA'd. So they opted for Trevor Williams, who went right to Syracuse. Javi Baez traded for on Friday, got in the lineup on Saturday, hit a home run. The Mets salvaged one out of the three games over the weekend against a pretty me mediocre Reds team that's struggling, and the Mets still haven't addressed their problem. We knew the Mets needed to add pitching, and they needed to get someone who could put the ball and play more, and instead they got another slugger who's either feast or famine. Yes, Javi Baez does give you elite defense, which is necessary because without Lindor for a little while, going from Lindor to Guillaume was pretty painful there for quite a while. So having Baez at short will help defensively. That'll especially help Stroman and... um. Tyler McGill, because they're both contact pitchers, the ball's in play, the better defenders you have, the more likely. You, if you have good fielders, they'll actually be able to help you out. So I don't I don't hate getting Javi Baez. It's just he's more of what the Mets already have. The Mets' entire lineup is if they don't hit home runs, they don't score. Nimmo gets on base, terrific. Pete hits some home runs. Conforto's not hitting his weight. James McCann has got some really empty calorie stats. Lindor was pretty mad in the first half. He was starting to come around before he got hurt, but he's leaving a little bit to be desired. Dom Smith has been fine. Nothing to write home about. Did have the walk-off hit on Saturday night, which was nice. But after what he gave you last year, you thought he might have a higher level. But he's probably this is probably what about Dom Smith is. But the Mets are still where they were before the deadline. They're a feast or famine team in a pretty bad division, and they're going to be scoreboard watching a lot of the second half, if especially if DeGrom doesn't come back, which is also news we got on Friday afternoon, right as I was getting to City Field to see the black jerseys in person, got the little ping there from, I think it was Jeff Passan, that DeGrom was going to be out until at least September because he has inflammation in his arm. So, you're looking at a five-man rotation of Marcus Stroman, Taiwan Walker, Rich Hill, Tyler McGill, and to be decided, Carrasco pitched okay on Saturday. He only gave up the one run, but he did only pitch four innings. And we'll see with Carrasco. I'm still not banking on him for the second half just because you don't you have absolutely no idea what he's going to give you. So for now, Carrasco's in that five spot, but our old buddy Jared Eikhoff could be back pretty soon. And the other ones, the White Sox bolstered what was already a pretty good team. They added Ryan Tapera to be the middle reliever acquisition, and they added Craig Kimbrell to what's already a good back end with Liam Hendricks, with Garrett Crochet, and uh, Michael Kopech. That is... 
one of the most exciting bullpens in all of baseball. I mean, the last two days, I made it a point to watch the White Sox and the Indians, the White Sox Indian series, because I wanted to see either Kimbrough or Hendricks pitch, because both of those guys are just absolutely electric stuff out of the back of the bullpen. That White Sox team. I don't know if they'll be able to beat Houston in a best-of-seven series, but it won't be the bullpen or the starting pitching's fault if they don't, is is what I'll say about that. And the last thing with the deadline I want to touch on here was the Yankees getting Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo, opposite of what the Yankees have had, adding a lefty guy who can get out in front of things, pull it over that Little League right field wall, play some above-average defense at first base, be an okay average hitter, Rizzo on the Yankees pains me. I've always liked Anthony Rizzo. It's hard not to as a baseball guy. But seeing him on the Yankees is just kind of weird. I compared it to the episode of SpongeBob where SpongeBob had to work at the chum bucket. It just kind of feels dirty, and it shouldn't be allowed to happen. But this is kind of where we're at. The Yankees kind of desperately made a series of moves to try and bolster their lineup, did not address their pitching concerns. In fact, they dumped Luis Sessa as a reason for the Reds to take Justin Wilson's three and a half or so million dollars. The Yankees are not paying either um, Joey Gallo or Anthony Rizzo here. The prospects they gave up, the teams that gave the prospects to are picking up the tab. The Yankees are just responsible for the league minimum salary, and the Cubs and Rangers will be picking up their salaries. I like the Rizzo move for the Yankees. Like I said, he's a lefty. He can cheat at Yankee Stadium. He can get out in front of things. Even if he gets into some bad habits of overly pulling the ball, rolling over on some stuff, you know, you'll take that if he gets some juicy power numbers here in the second half. And Rizzo probably walks in the offseason, but I imagine the Yankees will bring Joey Gallo back because he can give you a little bit of flexibility defensively. He can play the two corner outfield spots. He can play first. I know there's been some conjecture that he's going to play center field. You might not want to do that in these tight games, especially against a team like the Red Sox that's aggressive on the bases, but we'll see. Good move. Speaking of the Red Sox, very unexciting, adding Kyle Schwarber, Hansel Robles, nothing too flashy. You don't know when Kyle Schwarber's going to come back. He's still dealing with that hamstring injury. That's had him out of the lineup since mid-June when he went on that crazy tear where he had 15 home runs in 17 games. Really good first half from Schwarber. You don't know when he's going to come back, and you imagine the AL East will come down to the Red Sox and the Rays. I, I lean towards Tampa coming out in front in that division. I think Boston is pretty good, but I don't trust their pitching staff. Maybe if Chris Sale comes back to the major league level and looks as good as he did in Double A at the with the Worcester Sox, uh, maybe you could talk me into the Red Sox. But without another pitcher, I think Boston's ceiling is pretty limited. Uh, Padres, they went out, they added Adam Frazier, talked about that with Schweitzer on Friday's episode of the show, but more or less, we knew what was going to happen here. Oh, and of course, the Blue Jays got Jose Barrios, who I would have liked the Mets to get involved for, but the Blue Jays gave up two top 100 prospects, and that's top 100 prospects in all of baseball. The Mets have one definite one. And then another guy who could be a top 100 guy, depending on what prospect list you look at. So I understand the Mets' apprehension to give up that for Barrios. It's fine. The Mets' ceiling was always going to be, be defined whether or not DeGrom came back at a reasonable fashion. And there's time here. The Phillies or Braves will not get that far ahead of the Mets, knock on wood, if they do pass them. But... I, if DeGrom can come back by last week of August, first week of September, 
you can't write the Mets off because you can get him in there. You go back to that rotation you had in the first half, but you get to put Tyler McGill in there, and you get to put Rich Hill in there. And that's at least five major league starters, unlike some of the rotations we've had or some of the bullpen games we've had. The Mets' bullpen will not be as good as it was in the first half, and people are going to have to accept that. So it's important that the Mets do as good a job as possible of protecting their starters and trying to get some length out of them because you can't keep banking on the bullpen to give up no or one run every single night. And the offense has to get going, of course, here. I mean, we're talking about a team that scored two runs off of a pitcher with a 5 ERA on Sunday. Just absolutely abysmal stuff from the Mets over the weekend. Now, switching up gears, Hungarian Grand Prix Sunday morning. Really, really chaotic race. The kind of race that you get once or twice a season, pretty similar to what Baku was earlier in the year. Baku's chaos came towards the end of the race. This was chaos from the very first lap. I vividly remember looking at my phone in bed and being like, oh shit, it's 9.01. It's going to be lights out in like two minutes. I got to get in front of the TV. And as I was getting in front of the TV, I sat down. It's on. They're finishing up the formation lap. Okay, it's wet. Let's see. I didn't watch the pre-race, so I didn't really have a good feel for what the track, what kind of shape the track was in. And the first turn of the race is a yard sale. Botas, Valtteri Botas of Mercedes, breaks way, way too late going into turn one, which is a right-hand turn. And goes right into the back of Lando Norris, who goes into both Red Bulls. And within 100 yards of the start-finish line, six cars are wrecked. Uh, Four are knocked out of the race right there out of the gate. Within the first 100 yards of the race, uh, Chico Perez's Red Bull out of the race, Lando's uh, McLaren out of the race. And really quickly, you saw things devolve, and you got one of those weird races where... You had a stop, a standing start where you come back around after the red flag. You start the race over effectively. You don't start it over. That first lap did count, but you're starting from a start again. You're going the red lights, and you're waiting for the lights to go out. And that was the first part of the strategy here was going back around for that second formation lap. They're not in contact with the drivers, and Lewis Hamilton was in first posi- in first place after all of the chaos. He qualified, I believe, third. Over no, he qualified well over the on Saturday morning. But Lewis finished was in first after that wreck, and in that second formation lap, he decided I'm gonna go to the standing start. And every other car in the field went to the pits, changed tires to I believe the in- the slick tires, and that was. A really jarring problem really quickly because at the end of that second lap that Lewis took, when everybody else had already changed tires away from the the wet tires, Lewis had to stop and change his tires. So he's going to the back of the pack. He's in 14th, 15th position on lap number three of the race. And Lewis, by his sheer will, got himself into onto the podium with not a great car. I mean... It's very hard to overtake at 
the Hungarian track because there aren't as many straightaways. It's very twisty. It's harder to pass. It's harder to build up enough speed behind the car in front of you where you're not just getting dirty air in front of you. And because the track is so windy, it's very hard to avoid that dirty air that's coming behind you of the car in front of you chopping up the air and it's making your car bob and weave and that's out of your control and you just have to account for that but lewis got on that podium just he drove the absolute shit out of that car there's really no other way to say it because he does this every once or twice his season where he comes from the back of the pack and he'll pass 11, 12 cars. And you just see how in tune he is with his car that he's able to accomplish such a thing. And it wasn't a great race for Lewis. And he got back in the lead for the constructors. And the Mercedes got back in the lead for the constructors. And Lewis got back in first place for the driver's championship. Partially because Max's car was pretty screwed from that wreck on that first lap where Botas went into Lando and Lando took out both of the Red Bulls. Max was able to continue on. Chico Perez was not. But Max's car was really dinged up. The underside, the bottom, really, really damaged, which meant the car wasn't able to stick to the ground as much, which is what they're talking about when they talk about downforce. The downforce is the car sticking to the ground, and if you don't have as much downforce, your car isn't going to be able to turn as well, so you're going to have to brake sooner, you're going to have to go slower into every corner, and because you're doing that, you're never going to be able to really mount a serious effort to get into the top 10, which Max did not. He finished, I believe, in 11th. But the real story of this race were the surprises, really. I mean, Esteban Ocon driving an Alpine, which is, had not been very competitive this season, winning the race outright because he was in the right place at the right time. Sebastian Vettel is, as of the moment, getting credited with second place. I know there is the FIA had found that he had less gas in his car than the other cars, which is a rule that they have in place so cars aren't underfueled to try and make them lighter during the course of the race. But as of the moment, he's still being credited with second in the race. If he is not, Lewis will get the credit for second place, and then Carlos Sainz, who finished in fourth, will get the credit for third. And the last thing from this race, just good for Latifi and good for Nicholas Latifi and good for George Russell getting in the points for the first time with Williams. One of those older teams, one of those legacy teams that's been in the sport forever, but is a feeder team now, a B team for Mercedes, does not have the resources of the other teams, does not have a particularly competitive car. And for both of them to get in the top 10, very impressive stuff. And the last thing before we switch it up and get over to the hockey part of the episode, Fernando Alonso, man, 40 years old, driving on that Alpine team, kind of just in a holding pattern in his auto racing career, drove one hell of a race, and he blocked Lewis Hamilton for several laps during the course of that race, and if a less skilled driver had been in front of Lewis, Lewis probably passes Sebastian Vettel for second, and he's got a good shot at passing Ocon for first, but Alonso did such a good job blocking it's really, really hard to understate how difficult that is. I mean, we've seen a number of drivers over the this season in particular try and block Lewis on a late overtake, but there's just nothing you can do. Fernando Alonso was able to hold him off and just what a what a race, man. That was a very entertaining race. The kind of thing I talked about with 
Formulina during the week. We had a really good episode talking about Formula One and why it's, it's such an exciting sport because you get like three of these a year in a 22 race season where you get someone who has no business winning the race, winning the race because it is a race in the rain. And rain adds another variable that the elite teams, the Red Bull and Mercedes, they can't use the same advantages they normally have. So really fun race. If you're not a Formula One person, I'm telling you, go watch the race highlights on YouTube. If you have any, if you have ESPN, Go on the ESPN app. Go into the on-demand section. Watch the race. It's an hour and 40 minutes. It's exciting as hell. Cars going 200 miles an hour has got to stimulate that tiny part of your brain from when you were a kid playing with Hot Wheels. I promise. It's very, very pleasing. Now, moving on into the hockey news. A couple things over the weekend. The two big stories coming out of the weekend for hockey are Evander Kane and Jack Eichel. But before I started recording, within like the last hour on Sunday afternoon, the NHL voided the contract that Philip Grubauer agreed to with the Seattle Kraken for not having the right average annual value scaled out because they had moved the money around where the cap hit is bigger in certain years than others. But the year-to-year cap increase can never be more than i believe it's 25 percent of the total value of the contract so they will have to sort that out i imagine this is just a clerical paperwork error where someone on the cracking got an email from the league that this was wrong and someone shit their pants that they filed the contract wrong and they didn't they messed up some accounting but i imagine that will get sorted out i don't think money's going to be an issue there grubauer wanted to be in seattle and seattle was overpaying for a goalie who's Probably okay, but is probably a product of being on some pretty good Colorado Avalanche teams. So, the two big things from hockey over the weekend. We'll start with the Jack Eichel news because that's more conventional straight hockey news. That I can explain a little bit more straightforward and there's more definites and understandings there. Friday night, coming back from the Met game, I'm sitting there on my phone, I'm on the train, and I get the little ping because I still have Elliot Friedman's notifications on. There's a statement there from Jack Eichel's agent talking about their Eichel and his frustration that the Sabres had not facilitated a trade already, even though that there was an understanding that Eichel would be traded by the beginning of free agency, so he would have ample time to get medical treatment. He wants to get a surgery for his neck. He wanted to be traded by this time already, so he would have time to get situated with his new team. They could familiarize themselves with his medical situation. He could get his treatment, his necessary surgical treatment. He could rehab, and he could be ready in time for the start of training camp. And now that's in serious doubt if he will be able to participate in training camp. He might have to miss the beginning of the season as he ramps up because he's going to have neck surgery of some kind. And obviously, this was a tactical decision from Eichel's camp to have one of the doctors he's been consulting with make an appearance on 31 Thoughts, Elliot Friedman, and Jeff Merrick's podcast for Sportsnet. I don't think this is a coincidence that the same within 24 hours of them issuing a public statement about their frustration about how Jack wants to be gone already was coordinated. Obviously, it was with the doctor going on that podcast uh, about 30 minutes. Uh, uh, Just the cliff notes. The Sabres 
didn't want Eichel to get neck surgery of any kind at all. They just wanted him to rehab and try and let the herniated disc in his neck heal on its own. The six weeks went by where Eichel was supposed to rehab and see how he felt. He is still feeling discomfort. And now there are two ways to go about this. Because his neck injury is towards the top of his neck and not lower down in his spinal cord, he can either get a fusion, which is removing the disc that is herniated, and then letting the two discs above and below it fuse together using some tendon from other places, or... There's the artificial replacement, which is the one Ico wants, that the Sabres do not want him to get because it's never been done in a hockey player before. The doctor's name is Chad Prusmik. He works in Colorado. He's worked with rugby players, UFC fighters, and the way he made it sound, obviously this is the doctor's opinion, and I don't think... Eichel's camp would have made a doctor available who didn't want to advance their preferred treatment because that wouldn't make sense from a public relations standpoint. But the way this doctor explained it, the artificial replacement will improve Eichel's quality of life later on in life after hockey because fusions can be tricky. There are lingering effects. It does increase the burden on those two spinal columns when they're fused together because they're both trying to make up for the load of the missing one because one is removed in a fusion and and fusion is what peyton manning had in denver and everybody remembers how peyton manning went out in that super bowl against the panthers where he could not throw a football more than 10 yards down the field he still to this day says he really can't feel his fingers all that well that's because he had a fusion and the fusion is a little bit more complicated Whereas the artificial replacement, which I believe the most recognizable name that the doctor cited was Chris Weidman, the UFC fighter, the former heavyweight champion of the UFC. Chris Weidman has an artificial neck replacement for one of the discs, and he's been fine. Chris Weidman, I mean, he hasn't been good in the UFC in a long time, but that has nothing to do with his neck. He just doesn't have the hands he used to, and his wrestling isn't as good. But that's really the crux of this issue, and... I thought by now this would have been resolved, like I said, because Eichel wants to be able to participate in his new team's training camp and preseason to kind of ramp himself up. But now we're at a point where that's going to be very much in doubt. And with each passing day, it kind of seems like Buffalo has backed themselves into a corner where if Eichel's unhappy, he's just going to sit. He's going to refuse to play. And yeah, he won't get paid, but okay, he wants to leave. And every day the Sabres wait, another team will say, well, you got a guy who doesn't want to be there. He's not going to play for you. He needs medical treatment. Why should we have to give up the best possible package here? There are only a handful of teams still in the mix. LA priced themselves out. Minnesota probably has priced themselves out. Seattle has probably priced themselves out. The only teams really in the mix here the Rangers, maybe the Minnesota Wild, maybe the Columbus Blue Jackets, maybe the Calgary Flames, maybe the Bruins, if they were to do roster players as opposed to prospects. But Buffalo, is, as an organization, the Sabres, they're not going to get the full value for Eichel. They should have obliged him before last season, before he hurt his neck, because now they're not going to get the full value. As a Ranger fan... As a hockey analyst, I think Eichel is one hell of a hockey player, 
assuming his neck is fine, assuming the treatment works and everything, we're talking about one of the 15, 20 best players in the entire sport. He's only 24 years old. He's under contract for five more years. The neck is right. Everybody in the league would be lining up for him. And from what I understand about the public relations onslaught the Sabres are facing, it does seem like they're going to have to take less than they wanted. The right? I've been pretty confident in this offer. I will stand by it. They should, the Rangers should be offering either Heedle or Krasov, and then one of Schneider or Lundqvist, draft selections, and if Buffalo wants Ryan Strom, they can have Ryan Strom too. Reasonable offer here. We're talking about three or four assets for someone who isn't going to be able to play on opening night, who has a significant contract, and I'm not dicking you here. That is a reasonable offer. Buffalo says they want four first-round values. Heedle or Krasov, both first-round picks. Schneider or Lundqvist, first-round picks. So that's two first-round assets right there. And then you could go two ones, you could go a one and a two, one and a conditional two. You get your four assets, Kevin Adams. You can start rebuilding. You can work with Owen Power, Rasmus Dahlin. You can see what Tony Donato can do up there as your coach. You already got shafted for Sam Reinhart. You got a good return for Rasmus Ristolainen. You turn up day one at training camp with a Phil Heedle, a Ryan Strom, a Vitaly Kraftsov, a Braden Schneider, a Nils Lundqvist, you are better off than you were with Jack Eichel sitting in his penthouse waiting to be traded. And the last thing on today's episode is a kind of sensitive topic. It is the Evander Kane situation, which is still developing, which the NHL, the NHL was able to get a statement out within two hours of him being accused of throwing hockey games, but it took him a couple days to issue a statement about the Chicago Blackhawks. But that's not the point. This is a serious dereliction of just responsibility as an adult. I mean, it's been known for a while Evander Kane has had a gambling problem. I mean, we knew as early as 2019 that he had been borrowing money from banks, from creditors, from casinos, for God knows what, but he filed for bankruptcy in the spring of 2021, claiming debts north of $27 million with assets of about $10 million, this is someone with a serious gambling problem, but his wife has a child with, a child on the way, accused him of basically abandoning her with the children while he was out partying and being with other women and engaging in... What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say criminal because I don't know if it's criminal or not because it depends where it took place. But suspicious behavior is the way I would describe it. Uh, she posted a bunch of accusations on Instagram, amongst others, that on days off from the Sharks, he was flying to casinos around the country with cowed carters to play blackjack like this was rounders or this was 21. So I, I'm we knew we've known for a long time that Evander Kane has kind of done some bad shit or at least at the very least put himself in bad positions around other people he's been accused of sexual assault and harassment more than once the gambling debts the welching on debts the whole the sharks might void his contract so the banks that are trying to get money from him can't garnish his wages this is a very bad situation on all fronts I didn't even get into the whole she accused him of betting on Sharks games and throwing games because there's never going to be really any concrete way to ascertain if he actually was throwing games. 
It is against the rules if you are a professional athlete to bet on any games involving your sport. You cannot bet on hockey in the NHL. Even if you are a Vander Kane, you can't bet on the Leafs playing the Rangers. As part of the collective bargaining agreement, you are not allowed to gamble on hockey at all. If they get someone on the record in a sworn deposition saying, yeah, Vander Kane, bet on game X, Y, and Z at this price for this many times, he's done. The league will suspend him indefinitely. The commissioner can void his contract, and he could be out of hockey, like completely, at least in the United States. He might have to go play in Europe. He might go play in Russia. But as far as the NHL is concerned, if those accusations are true, he will be out of hockey. But this is more the moral side of things because we don't know how that investigation is going to play out. Just It just goes to show you hockey's problem. Hockey has never been the most inclusive, welcoming place, but it just speaks to the problem NHL players have with women, the sexual misconduct allegations, whether it's in junior hockey, when they're kids in the NHL as adults. They, the habit of them treating women like disposable objects just for appearances is a problem the league has to deal with, and it will hold the league back when you have players getting married, having children, and then abandoning the wife and the children for reasons, I guess, is what Evander Kane would say. Uh, he's getting to, they're in the process of getting a divorce. Don't know how close that is to playing out. I know his wife had mentioned she says he's filed for divorce because he's tried to she has tried to get him treatment for his gambling addiction he hasn't said why they're getting a divorce he's tried to play down this entire situation accuse her of being over dramatic being crazy and being manipulative and using their ch their child as a crutch in the arguments they have as the pro as part of the reason they want she wants to be able to get a divorce it's a very complicated situation but it just goes to show you hockey's problems are very much their of their own making a lot of these problems can be solved with addressing the underlying cultural issues the sport has always had these are people who are taken from their homes as children who go to play junior hockey in entirely different provinces or different states or different countries as teenagers they never get to have a childhood because they are constantly working on hockey. And then what do we do? They turn to 18 years old. We give them millions of dollars and say, you're an adult. You can do whatever you want. No wonder they make God-awful decisions. These are men children with million-dollar bankrolls to do God knows what they want to do. That is what this is a reflection of. The problem hockey has where, where players in junior hockey, developmental leagues, amateur hockey never have to grow up. They are just stunted in their emotional development in their early teens. And these are, like I said, these are teenagers with millions of dollars. And what do teenagers want to do with millions of dollars? Gamble, buy drugs, drink alcohol, hang out with attractive women, go to casinos, go to expensive restaurants. All of these things, these are all tied back to the emotional growth that is stunted when we pluck kids who are 14 years old away from their homes to go live with belay families in junior hockey in remote parts of Canada. All of these things are tied together. All of hockey's problems stem from one original basis. The sport is flawed from the ground up because you take kids away from their families when they are too young and they do not get proper values. And it throws everything out of whack because 
Those are the people who become decision makers at the league level. Those are your general managers and presidents. Those are the people who get to make the policy for the league. The NHL still does not have a formal sexual misconduct policy for players or staff at any level. There is no anonymous tip line with the league office for anyone, whether it be someone in the organization or a victim of someone in an organization. Hockey has a lot of shit it's got to get together. All right, that was about 40 minutes lighter episode today. Tomorrow, we will be unpacking some more hockey stuff, more than likely. Trying to iron out a really good guest I've been trying to get. Not sure when they're going to be available, but they did say they would let me know. Got two really good guests in stone for this week. Wednesday and Thursday, we will have guests Going to try and get one for Friday, but not positive. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope I caught you up to date on the important stuff that happened over the weekend. Oh, yeah, Russell Westbrook's a Laker. Forgot to mention that because the NBA draft was on Thursday. Yeah, that might happen. The Heat opted into Goran Dragic's player option. They might be trading him to the Raptors for Kyle Lowry. Um, any other basketball? Oh, yeah, the Knicks didn't uh, tender Frank Nitilakina, so he's an unrestricted free agent. The last part of the Phil Jackson era with the Knicks is gone. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I will see you guys tomorrow.